Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Angel Kristen, an assistant professor in the sociology department at Stanford University. We talked to Angel about her work on technology and the criminal justice sector, both in US and France. We cover the definitions and purpose of risk assessment algorithms, as well as how prosecutors and judges use them in their daily work. We talk about fairness and agency in sentencing, the Compass case, and the origin of the anxiety and moral panic around the use of AI algorithms. Lastly, we cover governance around development and deployment of risk assessment tools, as well as the nature of the conversation between the academic field and the criminal justice sector when it comes to the topic of technology. We hope you enjoy it. Um, hi friends, we are here today with Angel. Um, hi Angel. Hello. <laughs> um, Okay, so I'm going to go right into it and ask you to speak a bit more um, to me, but also to our listeners about you. Um, what has been your path so far um, in this space? Sure. So um, I identify as an ethnographer, uh, <laughs> which means that I care deeply about uh, what people do, uh, how they interact, how they exchange ideals, how they work. And in particular, I've been studying how they interact with technology. And I've been doing that in two main uh, spaces. The first one is uh, web journalism. So I've been spending a lot of time during my dissertation, which I did at Princeton uh, in sociology, studying how web journalists uh, make sense of um, analytics which are uh, kind of real-time numbers that they receive on their desktops about sources of traffic, right? About how many visitors come to each pages, how, many, how much time they spend, where do they come from, how to better attract them, how to optimize traffic. And so I've been studying how journalists respond to this kind of flux of, of, of data uh, about online readers and online traffic and the emotional responses that they have to it. Um, so that was kind of my first big project, my dissertation project. But then I've been working on a different project, which is um, about criminal justice mm. and about the role of uh, predictive algorithms in the criminal justice sector in the United States and uh, the role of what's called risk assessment tools, which are these predictive models and software programs that are used to assess the risk of recidivism of defendants. Mm. Uh, and here again, looking at how judges, prosecutors, lawyers uh, work around these type of software programs and make sense of the results that they get through these programs and whether they resist them or not. Mm. And so I will say that, you know, these are two very different cases. But in, in both cases, um, I come in as an ethnographer, meaning that uh, I spend a lot of time with people. I interview them. I do observations of the way they work. I try to understand how they see the world and how they understand the technological tools that they're working with. And I try to give voice to um, their ideals, their doubts, their questions, 
and and everything that happens when they interact with this type of, of instruments. Mm. And, and where does your personal interest into these two themes come from? Yeah, so what's interesting about that is that I wasn't really, I didn't really care about technology until 10 years ago, I think. I mostly saw myself as a, an ethnographer of work. So I cared about work, about organizations, about labor collectives, about unions, about fair labor practices for all. Uh, about meaning making within organizations, that type of things. Uh, so my first two books are really not about technology at all. Uh, and then I started doing this project on journalism and I came in kind of, you know, with my traditional questions, which is like, oh, how do journalists make sense of their work? How do they interact with each other? What kind of hierarchies takes place within newsrooms? And so I started doing field work in, in, in web newsrooms in the US and France. And, and over the course of my field work, I realized that technology was at the center of it all, right? And that really the main thing that journalists kept talking about um, was the kind of software programs that they were working with. And specifically, uh, the software programs that they were using to track traffic numbers in real time. And so I started kind of changing my research question based on the kind of data that was emerging from the field, right, which is what uh, ethnographers like to do, uh, from anthropology to sociology to uh, other disciplines. And so I started caring more about algorithms mm -hmm. and the roles that algorithms play in um, modern workplaces. And so that kind of in turn redirected my interest, right, to um, how do uh, workers, professionals, like all types of workers, make sense of algorithmic technologies um, in modern day organizations. And so uh, based on that question, I kind of, um, I mean, I can talk much more about this if, if you're interested, but, you know, I was like, oh, you know, journalism is an interesting case, um, but in a way, it's also a case where technology is central just because the digital revolution has hit uh, the journalistic industry really hard over the past 20 years. And so what if instead we looked at another sector where technology is much less central mm. and where in fact there is a lot of resistance to technological innovation and that would be criminal justice. Yeah. Um, and I think that criminal justice was also particularly interesting for me because I had been studying it before in the past. I had done, uh, I did an ethnography of a criminal courthouse um, in the suburbs of Paris uh, during the urban riots of 2005-2006. And I think that what's really interesting with the case of criminal justice is that, um, especially in the U.S., um, there is right now a kind of collective realization that um, the criminal justice sector is deeply unfair and needs to be reformed mm -hmm. uh, for a range of reasons, right? Like on the kind of left side, it's because uh, of civil rights issues, because uh, criminal justice in the U.S. Uh, touches predominantly African-American populations and um, low-income populations, uh, and also for budgetary reasons, which is that it's very expensive to keep several millions of people in jail. Mm -hmm. And so that de-incarceration, as in like, you know, putting an end to mass incarceration has become an important goal. And so I was kind of interested in how for many reformers, um, technology seems like an easy way to kind of fix the criminal uh, justice system, and I, I kind of wanted to add nuance to this idea that we can always trust technology uh, to change things very easily. I mean, usually with long-standing social issues like uh, mass incarceration and a long history of racism and discrimination, we 
which is what's happening in the U.S. criminal justice system, using algorithms is not going to solve things magically. It's going to be much more complicated. And so um, I wanted to like look into these questions of fairness and implementation um, in a case that was just very politically charged. Yeah, um, we had two speakers on the podcast so far that work with AI that that told us about that famous case um, in the justice system with the with the AI algorithm that was built to um, make the process of sentencing, I think, more fair. <laughs> Is this one of the algorithms that you are looking at in your research? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's uh, what's called risk assessment tools. Mm. And uh, the main, so um, in the US right now, you have a variety of risk assessment tools that are being used. More than 60 different software programs are being used depending on the jurisdiction, the state, um, the levels, the type of course, etc. And, and one of them in particular has become the focus of most of the attention. And it's probably uh, the ones that um, you've been talking about. Uh, it's called Compass. Um, yes. And it's, uh, it's been investigated in this article by the ProPublica uh, journalistic team uh, led by Julia Angwin. Uh, and that, in terms of kind of statistical analysis that they did, showing that, in fact, it was biased against blacks, but in specific ways, um, has led to a lot of debates about what fairness means uh, in the case of algorithms. And so I had started working on that topic before the ProPublica articles was published. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very excited to see all the attention that um, is going on around risk assessment tools. Uh, my take on it, though, is a bit different, I would say, from uh, what most of the people who study fairness in criminal justice through the case of predictive algorithms is. So, and I can, I'm happy to talk a bit more about that. Yes, please. Most of the people who are interested in predictive algorithms in criminal justice come from one of, of two perspectives. Um, some of them are mostly interested in the question of fairness. Mm. And so they are concerned for very good reasons about the fact that the algorithms may be discriminating uh, against uh, blacks, right? And the reason for that is because it's drawing on historical data, which is itself biased against black because it mirrors a long history of discrimination. And so that in turn is reflected in the tool. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you um, balance fairness versus uh, public safety? And that has given rise to, to a big debate, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the second group of people who is interested in this predictive algorithms and criminal justice topic are statisticians. And that's because ProPublica uh, made the data sets that they've been collecting public. And so it's the first one of the first times that you have um, a data set made public about an algorithm of such size. And so a lot of statisticians and computer scientists have been kind of analyzing the data and trying to uh, get a sense of how to replicate the algorithms that Compass is using in order to measure discrimination and perhaps try to fix the algorithm. So these two sides are kind of different, but they both share one thing in common, which is that they all focus on uh, the tools themselves. They all focus on the algorithms themselves, right? So in that case, uh, the Compass risk assessment tool. I am not interested in the tools themselves. I am interested in how they are used. Mm. So that's where my approach is a bit different. Um, so as an ethnographer, what I've been doing for the past three years is uh, doing interviews and observations in criminal courts across the US. So I've been doing interviews and observations on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and in the South, in three different uh, criminal courts. And I've been trying to understand how judges 
prosecutors and, 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 and defense attorneys uh, make sense and use the risk assessment tools like Compass, which everybody is talking about. Mm. And so what's interesting is that everybody's talking about these tools, but no one's looking at how they're being used. And so I kind of like decided to go look at that. So what I found is at first there is a lot of variation in uh, the amount of trust and the level of use uh, that legal professionals have with respect to predictive algorithms. So in some of the courts that I've studied, yes, there is a strong incentive to use predictive algorithms to decide on sentencing. And people kind of follow a set of guidelines about how to use the risk assessment tools, etc. But in other criminal courts, uh, these risk assessment tools are never used. Mm. So they do exist. Uh, the court system has licensed Compass and usually several other risk assessment tools. And I'm happy to talk more about the different kinds of risk assessment tools that exist out there because there are many different kinds. Compass is only one out of 70. But there is also a lot of resistance. And that's what I found particularly interesting uh, in the sense that for many prosecutors and judges especially, um, using predictive algorithms is kind of... Um, they kind of don't like doing it. And because they don't like doing it, they usually don't do it, right? Um, so the reason why they don't like doing it is, first, they've all read the ProPublica article, and so they know that there are concerns about the alleged fairness of these tools. And so they say, well, you know, why should I use a tool which um, input and output are problematic, uh, which is a black box in the sense that I don't understand how it's calculated, I don't understand... Uh, where it comes from, I don't understand how it measures things, uh, I don't even know which is the company that built the algorithm, right? And so why should I use this tool when I'm a legal professional, I've been a judge or a prosecutor for 20, 30, 40 years, and I really trust my experience and my judgment instead, right? How, how do they uh, define how, fairness? So, so that's a question, right? Uh, for many of them, uh, what's problematic about uh, risk assessment tools is that um, it's a definition of fairness which relies mostly on consistency. Mm. Uh, it's the idea that the same set of criteria will be applied to all the defendants, mm. regardless of, of their personality, regardless of their appearance, regardless of, of all of these kind of subjective factors, right? Relying instead on, on hard facts such as uh, criminal history, length, length at residence, uh, type of offense, you know, these kind of variables. But what judges and prosecutors say is that, well, first, they can look at these variables themselves, right? Because these variables are in the files. And so uh, why should they trust an algorithm to kind of do a better job looking at these variables and what they're doing themselves once they go through the files of the defendant? And that's the first thing. And second, they think that, I mean, I would say that for legal professionals, and here it's my world, not theirs, fairness also has to do with the potential for, for mercy in many ways. Uh, and it has to do with subjectivity in some kind of way. And that's because for most legal professionals, a sentencing decision has to be individualized in the sense that it has to be targeted to a specific individual whose characteristics cannot be compared to another individual, right? And that's what kind of drives, in many cases, their understanding of what a fair judicial decision looks like. And so what I hear over and over again is, listen, I trust my judgment instead. I trust my own experience instead. I've been looking at many cases. Yeah. 
and, and this is uh, this is what I trust. Now, that doesn't mean that their own judgment is more fair than what the algorithm does, right? But mm-hmm. it just means that that's how they um, justify their resistance to using algorithms in their daily work. What is the? I'm not sure if you if you can reflect on that, but but what is the end objective of this algorithm? Um, what's the purpose of the judicial system that it serves? So that's a very good question, and I think that it's different. People will give you very different kinds of answers. So I think so. Okay, let me let me kind of take a step back. I think that basically the main function of these risk assessment tools or predictive algorithms is is double. And whether they achieve any one of these double functions is, in fact, kind of under question, right? And the first goal is fixing bias hmm. in uh, decision making in the criminal justice system. So here's the ideal, and then it's another question whether it does in fact achieve that, right? But but here's the ideal for many reformers, for many of the people who build these uh, risk assessment tools, is that we know that uh, in the US criminal justice sector, bias, and especially racial bias, is built in at every single step of the process. Mm. And that, you know, when uh, legal professionals say that they rely on their uh, professional experience to make judgments, uh, usually it means heavily discriminating against blacks. Uh, And so for many of the people who trust risk assessment tools, the idea is that an algorithm cannot be worse than a human. Uh, That algorithms can only do better than humans in that case. Mm -hmm. And, And many of them, I think, would say... Even though, yes, we have to draw on historical data, so the algorithms will mirror in some kind of way uh, the past history of the criminal justice system and the fact that uh, over the past 50 years, um, African Americans have been incarcerated uh, much more and for much longer sentences than whites. Even though uh, these patterns are mirrored in the algorithms, uh, it's still uh, more fair than what humans would do Um, if they were deciding on sentences uh, without the help of an algorithm. And it is more fair because, and that's part of the ProPublica debate, risk assessment scores are calibrated across race. And so that means that a risk score of five for African-American defendants will mean the same thing as a risk score of four for white defendants, or five for white defendants, Mm. right? And whereas uh, the idea is that if you had two similar people coming up in front of a judge, with kind of a similar profile, uh, the judge would give a very different type of sentence to the white person compared to the black person. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of what advocates for, for risk assessment tools are, are saying that risk assessment tools are doing. And they have another kind of purpose, uh, which is that they want to uh, reduce incarceration numbers, right? And in order to reduce incarceration numbers, risk assessment tools seem like a good place to start, mm. especially uh, risk assessment tools that are used at the pre-trial stage. Yeah. So basically the pre-trial stage is, is not a sentencing decision. It's when a defendant is first brought to court. And um, based on his or her criminal record and the type of offense, uh, the judge decides either to set bail to release the person based on personal recognizance, so based on bail, basically, right? Or to send them to jail in order to wait for their trial, right? And so that's, uh, this pre-trial moment is an essential moment because basically judges don't have a lot of information about defendants at that point. Mm. And so that's a moment where bias is the most likely to happen mm-hmm. and to be 
go into decision-making process. Just because they don't really know who the defendant is, they have to make a lot of decisions very quickly about a large number of defendants. Mm. And then these decisions in turn have really profound effects on the rest of the procedure. Because if someone is sent to jail, they're going to lose their job. Mm. Uh, probably they won't be able to support their families for the time during the time they're in jail. Um, they're going to show up to, for their uh, trial, for their uh, hearing uh, in a convict kind of outfit, wearing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just like much more distressed than what they would look like if they were coming from the outside, if they had been released on bail, etc. And so for many criminal justice reformers, what we need to reform right now is a pre-trial moment because you have hundreds of thousands of people who are waiting in jail, not because they've been convicted of any crime, but because they're waiting for the trial or for their hearing. And that's when racial discrimination is probably the largest and the least justified, I mean, the least justified in any kind of ways, right? And then the problem is that it has multiplying effects because once you've been uh, kind of sent, sent to jail before the trial, you're much more likely to get a prison sentence during your hearing. So, so, so the idea is that You know, knowing that judges and prosecutors have to make all of these very rapid decisions, they are more likely to rely on subjective judgment because they're under time pressure, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of constraints, and they don't have a lot of information. And so it's much better to rely on an algorithm to do that than human judgment. And so that's kind of the main role, really, that these risk assessment tools, I think, are aimed to do, right? It's, it's really to reduce incarceration rates at the pretrial moment. Mm. Now, whether they are, in fact, doing that mm. is something else, because it's a bit unclear um, that jurisdictions are, in fact, using risk assessment tools in order to release defendants at the pretrial stage. It's, it's not that clear, but that's what they're designed to do. Yeah, and, and they're meant to be used always together with a human, right? Not yes, past judgment by themselves. And so that's the other thing, right? It's like a lot of the debates about risk assessment tools right now are about like, oh, artificial intelligence gone wild, like it's minority <laughs> you know, we are being judged by robots. And it, hmm. that's actually, a, that does disservice to um, the reality and the complexity of what's going on in the criminal justice sector, because it's, it's not it's not minority report, it's not artificial algorithm, uh, artificial intelligence gone wild. Um, it's specific software programs, usually, by the way, not drawing on uh, deep machine learning techniques. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's just linear regression, clear and simple. Uh, not very sophisticated. You just have to take a look at what the user interface looks like for many of these software programs. This is not the software program of the future. Uh, many of these tools were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, you know, they were put online in the 90s or early 2000s. They're not very fancy. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing, right? And they're not using very fancy statistical techniques. Usually, it's you know just linear regression. Uh, and second, they are designed to be another piece of information mm. that judges and prosecutors take into account when making decisions. And that's actually one of the main things that I found in my field work, which is that in several of the courts that I've been studying, the way it works is that, and that the kind of practical details here are important, right? Mm. Most of the courts are still using paper-based files. Okay, so uh, for example, clerks and uh, pretrial officers have computers, and so they fill up, for example, risk assessment tools on their computers, and then they print out the score page, which is a page where it's like, oh, this defendant has a risk score of 5 out of 10, which means that he's at medium risk of recidivism. Uh, they print out the page, kind of double-sided, 
they add the double-sided page to the paper file of the defendant, which is usually about 100 pages long. It's like a big, massive file. depends on the file and the complexity of the case, etc. But, you know, like there, you have the criminal history, you have the police report, you have the social report, you have a, a lot of data. You have the testimonies of the friends and families, the witnesses, you have uh, employment kind of documents, tax documents, you have a lot of stuff. And, and so it's, you know, this risk assessment tool, is, it's one page out of 100. Mm-hmm. And then these pages, these files, usually big paper files, are carted to the prosecutor's office and to the judge's office, right? They are duplicated using a good old copy machine, and judges and prosecutors look at the file. And so what I found when I spent time with um, in criminal courts is that often they don't even look at the score page mm. because it's one out of a hundred pages. And so they are not, they don't think that it's particularly important and they don't, they don't really look at it. Mm. You know, so just, it's one of like a thousand pieces of information that they look at and it's not the most important one. So I think that when we think about the minority report metaphor, this is a very different type of scenario. Now that doesn't mean that it's not important. It is still very important because if, you know, a growing number of people think that we should use algorithms to fix the criminal justice system, then we'd better make sure that the algorithms themselves are not biased, right? Because yeah. uh, then we're going to fix the criminal justice system without fixing it, in fact, making things worse by releasing more white people than black people out of prison, which would defeat the point of the whole enterprise. Mm. So I do think that it's a very important topic, but it's perhaps not the kind of artificial intelligence nightmare yeah. that uh, we hear about very often. Why do people get so intense about this topic? So I think um, I think there is a lot of anxiety right now about the roles that digital technologies, algorithms, and artificial intelligence are playing in our lives, hmm. right? And you see these kind of moral panics kind of uh, bubbling out uh, regularly, right? It's about Facebook's filter bubble. It's about discrimination in advertising. Uh, it's about uh, precision medicine and robots kind of doing surgery. It's about uh, robots are going to take our jobs and we will all be jobless. It's about and, and so you see this kind of ongoing anxiety play out uh, regularly on different topics. And I think that the case of criminal justice just is a perfect kind of example hmm. for many of these fears. Uh, because the ideals that you could be sentenced by a machine mm. that wouldn't take into account the specific characteristics of your case is particularly terrifying. And the ideals that bias could then become embedded in technological systems and then reproduce inequalities, even though everybody thinks that algorithms are more objective than humans, mm. and they could in fact be more biased than humans yeah. and still be allowed to operate without anyone uh, being able to investigate what's going on within the black box of the algorithm is, is particularly terrifying. Um, my friend Sarah Brain uh, studies with a professor at UT Austin studies um, predictive policing, mm. and it's, you see the same kinds of, of worries and anxieties and, and moral panics about predictive policing. Even though, and we are working on the paper on this together, um, she finds exactly the same kind of resistance mm. among policemen to the use of predictive policing as an I find among legal professionals. So the reality of what's going on on the ground is just much more complex than what these nightmarish scenarios 
um, seem to indicate. Yeah. But I do think that there is something there that we need to take very seriously because we certainly mm. don't want these algorithms to be biased, even if it's not quite these terrible scenarios that we imagine, they still have an influence, or they could have a lot of influence. So we have to be very careful. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps not in the minority report uh, style metaphor. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you were mentioning that in your work, you focused a lot on how these tools are used, right? And and how these people interact with them. And I wanted to ask you, how have you observed their own biases come into play in the way they use the, the tools? Do the tools, to some extent, call out some bias? Or how does it happen? So this is a very good question. And so when I was... a when I was still in France, I did this long uh, ethnography of a criminal court in the outskirts of Paris, and I was specifically interested in um, in how in how legal in the biases of legal professionals and how these biases uh, come up in the decision making process mm-hmm. and the sentencing process. And it's very hard to investigate, uh, just because first you never have as an ethnographer all the information about the cases. So it's always a bit unclear to, it's always a bit hard, for example, to find clear-cut cases of people having exactly the same kind of offense, exactly the same kind of criminal record, and uh, be given uh, dramatically different sentences based on um, their racial profiles, right? So you, you almost never see that. Um, so, so all of this to say is that investigating discrimination from an ethnographic perspective is, is hard. Now, what I did find at the time, and this is a bit of a meandering response <laughs> to your question, right, was that the way in which bias happens, or the way in which bias is reproduced, is actually through uh, what I call the criminal justice chain, which is not one decision, but in fact many different decisions across the kind of criminal justice sector, right? So it starts with policing. Uh, who gets arrested, who does, who, who gets stopped, who doesn't, uh, who gets searched, who doesn't, mm. who gets uh, arrested, who doesn't, who gets charged, who doesn't, who gets brought to the criminal courthouse, who doesn't, who gets um, set free on bail and who gets sent uh, to jail waiting for their hearing, who doesn't, uh, who gets a prison sentence, who doesn't, who gets a probation sentence, who doesn't, who is liberated conditionally, who isn't. Mm. And like all of these, at all of these little stages, um, the outcomes are different for different racial categories, right? They're different for blacks and whites, they're different for Latinos and Asians, they're different for many different types of people. And, and, and basically, it's like a decision tree. It's like as soon as you're put in one of the less favorable categories, the chances that uh, the next decisions will be uh, worse are much greater. Right, and so and so that's the way in which bias happens. It's not at every. It's not oh, this one major decision mm. uh, where like everything goes nuts. Right, it's not like the O.J. Simpson case or, yeah. or whatever. It's in fact in these many different small uh, decisions where everybody's like ah, you know, I think I think they shouldn't be released before the trial because there is a risk. Um, I'm not sure that the risk is actually big, but um, someone else will decide on that. Mm-hmm. And so they're just pushing the problem down the chain. And then the next person down the chain is like, well, you know, the previous person um, didn't release them on bail and instead sends them to jail waiting for the trial. So probably it's because they thought that that person was dangerous. So 
probably is right that this person is dangerous, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to give them a prison sentence. And so, and it's like all of these things, right? Where like people at the top of the chain are like, well, further down the chain, they'll have more information, they'll be able to make a more informed decision. Whereas further down the chain, they're like, well, if people at the top of the chain made that decision, they probably knew what they were doing. And so I'm going to confirm that. Mm-hmm. So this is a long answer. But I do think that there is a way of breaking this chain, right? And the way of breaking this chain is basically having independent assessments of um, the actual risk that uh, any given offender is, is, is um, associated with that uh, wouldn't have to do with human judgment. Mm. And the problem is that algorithms are also biased, so I don't really know where to come from, but I think that the idea of giving a new chance to offenders at some point in the middle of the chain mm. is real. Yeah. Now, what I found, that's what risk assessment tools are supposed to be doing. Mm. But what I found during my field work, and here I'm also drawing on, on other work that has been examining risk assessment tools in, in different countries and how they're used, um, is that, you know, say um, legal professionals or uh, probation officers um, enter the characteristics of a defendant on one of these uh, predictive uh, algorithms and get results they don't like. For example, they think that the suspect is really dangerous. That's their opinion. And for some kind of reason, the risk assessment tool says, low risk, release. Mm. It has been said, and several people have found out, I haven't seen that myself, but you know, uh, I trust my colleagues who have been, uh, who reported such cases, that probation officers and uh, pretrial officers are perfectly able to manipulate the variables that they enter in the algorithms mm-hmm. in order to change the output. In other games, in other words, well, they can game the system, yeah. right? And they can manipulate the algorithms in order to get the output that they want. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's hard because using algorithms doesn't mean that you get rid of bias. Mm-hmm. In fact, like there is still bias and subjective decision making, both at the entrance level in the kind of variables that you put into the algorithm and at the output level in the kind of results that you get mm-hmm. and how you interpret it. Yeah. I was wondering how does this fit into how, how they view the justice system itself and, and the concept of rehabilitation of a human being? How does that fit into this, into this discussion around algorithms, do you think? So this is a good question. And once again, it depends on what deep down you think risk assessment tools are for. So do you think that risk assessment tools are designed in order to put people in prison? Or are they designed in order to keep people out of prison? And you see, you're using the tool in very different ways depending on, on your outlook on mm-hmm. this question. Because if you think that predictive algorithms should be used in order to identify high-risk people yeah. who should be put in jail, then you're going to be not caring about rehabilitation at all. Mm. I mean, what you're doing is that you're looking at the past history, the criminal history of the defendant, and uh, you're interested in how that criminal history and a bunch of other factors kind of uh, assess the risk, the level of danger mm-hmm. of that. And so, depend based on that, you should send them to jail or prison for as long as possible in order to preserve public safety. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in using risk assessment tools in order to keep people out of jail mm-hmm. or release them from jail, then you're going to use the tool very differently. You're going to be looking at all the people who have kind of a low risk or medium risk, and you'll be asking, 
what kind of resources mm. they target towards these individuals in order to help them reinsert society, right? Mm -hmm. In order to release them early and make sure that they find a job, that they steer clear of drugs, that they have a place to stay, mm. that they can spend time with their family and friends, that they don't get dragged back into the kind of life that led them there in the first place. And so, and these are very different ways of using the tool. In one case, you use it in order to put people in jail or prison. Mm. In the other case, you use the tool in order to channel resources yeah. towards a person, in order to keep them from mm. being frustrated. Mm. And do you think when people build these algorithms, they, they take into account these different ways and these different ideologies that support those methods of use? Yeah, and so that's where it's really fascinating to look at the people who have been building uh, risk assessment tools. And so here again, they are like very different people, right? I mean, in some cases, they're like for-profit companies and their motivations are not super clear, except that they are licensing it to jurisdictions and they are making mm. profits um, out of it. And so, uh, admittedly, the more people are sent to jail, the more jurisdictions are using the tool, uh, the better for them. Uh, but in other cases, they were built by social workers and uh, criminologists, hmm. whose voice is not so much to, um, is not at all to make a profit, but is really to kind of um, channel public resources towards the people who need it the most, hmm. right? And so, that's where, like, I think that the fact that most of the debate has focused on Compass so far, which is one tool out of many, um, is a bit misleading because uh, Compass was built by a for-profit company, Northpoint, which is particularly um, enigmatic because they're very keen on protecting their intellectual property. But there are many other risk assessment tools that were built by um, academics who have no mm. um, skills in the game and who just want to um, try to make the best model in order to uh, decide who should get social resources. Yeah. Have you have you seen other social systems that do it better, or that have managed to incorporate technology um, in a in a in a more seamless way than than what you've seen in the United States? I think that there are ways in which technology. I think technology can always be. It's like you know, technology is neither good nor bad, and neither yeah. is it. It's like it's technology can be used to improve things for sure, and so. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of, once again, the case of criminal justice, which is something I've seen in, in a couple of courts, including in the French case. Mm. Um, you can use technology in order to um, serve as a reflexive check yeah. on uh, judges and prosecutorial practices. Mm. So, for example, I know of, of one court where um, someone had compiled um, incarceration data uh, and rates uh, for different judges. Uh, basically, in order to identify was, whether there was a lot of variation in the kind of sentences that uh, judges with a comparable caseload were giving. Mm. That, in turn, seems... Uh, so judges, of course, are very much opposed to it. They really don't want people to look into their, um, their caseloads. Uh, and they'll always say, oh, but caseloads are not comparable. But in fact, it's interesting because um, we do have good reasons to believe that some judges are just much more punitive than others. Mm. Um, and probably this kind of punitive attitude um, is has subjective kind of blind spots. Yeah. Uh, and so typically for judges to be able to know that they're sending many more defendants to jail compared to their colleagues, 
I think that's an important piece of data. Mm. And then to be able to reflect on their practices, being like, so wait, why are my numbers so different from my colleagues' numbers? Mm. Uh, perhaps we should all kind of talk about what's, what we're doing in specific cases and how come I'm sending like yeah. all these like DYU um, cases to jail and my colleague like always release them, mm. you know? And so I think that typically for that, like, um, technology can be great. Yeah. It could be used as a kind of reflexive tool in the same way that I don't know for academics, for example, like um, student evaluations are biased and they're problematic in many ways. But um, if you have evaluations that are uh, systematically uh, way worse than those of your colleagues, accounting for a certain number of facts, for example, the fact that we know that women and minorities get worse student evaluations than uh, white males, right? Yeah. Uh, if even accounting for that, like you get some things that's just out of the ordinary, it makes you think about what you're doing wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not. I'm not against kind of technology as a feedback mechanism. Mm. I just it has to be implemented very carefully. That it has to be kind of transparent about which metrics are being chosen, why they're being chosen, how it's being implemented. Who is building the tool? Why is they building it? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is it affecting? Yeah. And how the kind of output is going to affect everybody involved? And, and I think that right now, in most of the sectors that I've been studying, um, these discussions are not happening. Uh, so they don't have, for example, like in the medical sector, a peer review system or a scientific system that kind of takes these pieces of technology and kind of starts judging them in the community? No, and so that's one of the major problems, right? Is that these risk assessment tools are like out in the wild. Yeah. Uh, there's no certifications, there is mm. no regulation, uh, and it's basically anything goes. So there are a couple of exceptions to that, right? For example, Pennsylvania uh, right now is developing a risk assessment tool, and they've been very uh, careful about um, the, the sentencing commission has been very careful about. Uh, making it public, kind of trying to involve uh, as many members of the of the public as possible, etc., which in turn created a big backlash. Uh, but but you know it's it's fair game. Uh, yeah. It's fair game. There is a big backlash, and at least the discussion is out in the open, and, yeah. and that's a very good thing. I and, think. And what's your experience with them accessing um, experts like you from the academic field that that study this uh, this topic? Have you seen that collaboration or that conversation happening? So I've seen it happening um, in um, specific circles, which are the circles of uh, think tanks and uh, reform-oriented organizations um, uh, interested in the criminal justice sector, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the VERA Institute, the Center for Court Innovation, uh, the ACLU, like all of these places are trying very hard to bring together uh, legal professionals, mm-hmm. uh, policy experts from uh, the federal state, um, statisticians and computer scientists and people from the industry, and uh, ethnographers and social scientists. And uh, at the same table, in order to talk about mm-hmm. uh, risk assessment tools. Uh, so, so there is this kind of discussion happening. Now, uh, within most criminal courts, I haven't seen a lot of, um, and, and you know, there are exceptions, right? But mm-hmm. I will say that I haven't seen a lot of discussions of these uh, questions yet. And that's because most criminal courts are busy running their, I mean, they're busy, they're busy with the day-to-day stuff that criminal courts do. And they, uh, they feel that they don't have time to participate in these more abstract discussions or more 
tentative discussions about um, what what should be done. And so more more often it's like, oh, we've been using these risk assessment tools for ten years. Um, you know, they work fine, whatever. Um, you know, yeah, we've heard that there is a lot of debate about it. We should really look into it, but we haven't done it so far. So, so I will say that there is a bit of a disconnect, um, but I'm hopeful that through these kind of discussions, um, I'm, I'm just very happy that these discussions are happening, and I think yeah. that they should be happening in in many different domains right now, mm. from yeah. uh, medical system to uh, the media system to uh, you know social work, state administration, higher education. I think that in all of these places where um, algorithms are playing an increasingly important role, you need to bring everybody at the same table and uh, get a sense of uh, where their opinions come from yeah. and, and think about it. And, and how do you um, publicize the kind of research that you do? Like, do you, is there anything to come up, have, have you already published or aim to publish in the future that we should um, be on the lookout for? Yeah, so I published a couple of things. Um, I published an article in an academic journal called Big Data and Society, um, called um, Algorithms in Practice, in which I look at the patterns of resistance that uh, judges and prosecutors have with respect to risk assessment tools and compare it to the case of journalism. I've also been publishing uh, more public-oriented pieces. So I published a magazine article in a critical um, magazine about technology called Logic, uh, and the piece is called The Mistrials of Algorithmic Sentencing. Um, and I've been writing more kind of policy-oriented memos uh, for think tanks. So, for example, I wrote one, uh, I wrote a primer for um, the Data and Society Institute where I did a poster, uh, which was geared for a conference on uh, civil rights and criminal justice uh, about risk assessment tools and their uses in the U.S., um, so, so, you know, basically I think that here's um, responsibility is also on academics to try to publish in different types of venues to, um, you know, both publish in academic journals because that's the way, that's the way it works, but also in more kind of public facing or policy facing uh, publications and uh, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's next for you? Are you um, approaching other avenues of research or are you still building on this topic? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, and I will add, sorry, about publicizing one's work, that like one of the other things that I'm doing that I'm really, really happy about is, uh, so, and that connects to your, to your, to your next question, um, is that so I'm teaching at, at Stanford, and uh, this quarter I was teaching a class called The Politics of Algorithms, oh. uh, which was all about algorithmic topics. And we had um, a week and a half on the criminal justice case mm. um, because students really resonate with that. And, and, and so what's really interesting for me is that, you know, most of these students are going to work in Silicon Valley mm. uh, after they graduate. I mean, there is a very strong pipeline between Stanford and Silicon Valley mm. and many students come from computer science and so I I think that this is essential mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know uh, as social scientists trying to um, make sure that uh, computer scientists get exposed to this kind of ideals and to these kinds of approaches about technology and about what ethics fairness um, uh, and complexity mean uh, when we're studying digital technologies is essential 
and my students have been very reactive and they all said, oh, like, I can't ever take any class like that. I'm a senior and this has been life changing and you know, I'm going to work at Facebook. And so anyway, I'm, I'm very happy about that because I feel that um, one student at a time, yeah. you can help change the way in which perhaps in 50 years, um, you know, tech companies think about the impact of um, the product that they're building. Mm. Uh, and so that will take me to, to my next research project. So I don't know yet. Uh, and that's what's wonderful about it. So right now I'm finishing to work on a book on uh, kind of algorithms in the workplace, uh, which will mostly talk about, about the case of journalism, but also some, some about criminal justice. Um, and, you know, I'm in the middle of Silicon Valley. I'm surrounded by uh, tech giants. And so I think I want to do something about Silicon Valley and about the culture that is producing uh, all of these technologies that uh, are then having such an impact um, everywhere around the world. Um, but I'm looking for a good site. Um, I haven't found it yet. So okay. I'm welcoming any suggestions at this point. <laughs> Well, that, that's great. Um, I totally resonate with you. Um, I have exactly the same fascination with the, the Silicon Valley and the products that, and you know, I, I even can't imagine the responsibility you would have to be working on something for Google or Facebook or Uber yes. that's going to be used for millions of people. And, you know, like, how do you do that? How do you manage that? Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. And I think that in many cases, they don't know. They, they don't know, Thank you know. Um, so, so anyway, we need to start thinking about these questions. Yeah, it was great talking to you and I hope our listeners will enjoy it just as much as I did. Great. Wonderful. So keep me posted. Okay. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.